All right, good morning, uh, everybody. I think we'll get started here. Uh, my name is Daniel Chu. I am the director of the Strategy Initiative and deputy director of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security uh, here at the Atlantic Council. And on behalf of the Atlantic Council, uh, Fred Kemp, president and CEO of the Atlantic Council and the Brent Scowcroft Center, uh, in collaboration with our new uh, council's uh, new Global Energy Center, uh, I want to thank you all for joining us uh, today. Uh, Fred Kemp asked me in particular to thank you all for coming to this. Uh, he believes this is a very important discussion for us to have. He's traveling right now in the Middle East with Steve Hadley and Madeleine Albright talking uh, to senior leaders very much about how they see the future of the Middle East, uh, key trends and challenges and opportunities in the Middle East. So this is an issue that uh, is of great interest to him, and he's particularly glad that uh, not only have we convened this discussion, but that you all have joined us uh, for this uh, as well. Uh, you know, it's not long ago, my job before coming to the Atlantic Council was doing uh, long-term strategy for the Department of Defense. And it's really not that long ago when we were talking about how high oil prices uh, would be uh, and how, frankly, we did not see an end to it. And if, if anything, we saw an end to oil, which would then drive oil prices even higher. Uh, and the question was, how would we manage that? The question today, even with some fluctuations in prices, is uh, have we found bottom yet? And what does bottom look like? Uh, how long can bottom last? And what are the implications uh, in the meantime uh, for us, for the Middle East, and for others uh, around the world? Earlier this week, uh, as you know, giants Russia and Saudi Arabia alongside uh, Venezuela and Qatar uh, agreed to freeze production in an effort to try and counter some of these uh, plummeting oil prices. And although this move, uh, this move stops short of cutting oil production, uh, it's yet to be seen exactly whether the agreement with the notable absences of uh, Iran and Iraq, of course, will make any meaningful headway in even stabilizing uh, the Middle East oil markets. There's been a lot of speculation lately on how falling crude oil prices will continue to impact markets, energy companies, and economies. But I think insufficient attention has been paid to the security and the economic ramifications for the Middle East uh, area as well. We were talking a little bit uh, as we were pre preparing for this, not only in my impression has uh, the significance of this been underappreciated, but the timing as well. I think, again, there is a sense that there is a long time in these trends, whereas the timing may be far more acute uh, than we might have anticipated. The collapse in crude oil prices clearly has significant geopolitical implications as rival Saudi Arabia and Iran become further entrenched uh, in conflicts in Iraq, Syria, uh, and Yemen. Uh, with economies largely pegged to the price of uh, crude oil, the fall in oil prices will likely reduce, result in reductions not only across domestic spending for Saudi Arabia and its Gulf neighbors, but major cuts across funds allocated for defense uh, as well. For places like Libya and Iraq, both in the midst of civil conflict, the fall in oil prices and loss of revenue only further exacerbates their ability to try and stabilize or to manage their political instability. So our discussion today will focus on the broader implications of falling oil prices for regional security in the Middle East. How will the decline impact the region's already very tenuous security environment? How will low oil prices impact oil producing uh, countries domestically? And what are the long-term political and economic ramifications of the downturn in crude oil prices? 
today's discussion is part of the Atlantic Council's wider effort to address key strategic issues confronting areas like the Middle East and America's role in vital regions. That's part of uh, the work that I do in this thing we call the Strategy Initiative, really trying to foster, encourage, and support uh, more constructive and substantive discussion in broader strategic terms, uh, trying to get away from just chasing the headlines of one agreement versus another and really looking at the long-term trends in a broader uh, way. Since last year, the Scowcroft Center has spearheaded a major campaign on Gulf security uh, after the Iran deal, nuclear deal, uh, and been engaging uh, key stakeholders on issues like upgrading U.S. defense strategy and force posture in the Gulf uh, for the long term. The Council's Global Energy Center that I mentioned earlier launched in 2015 and has emerged as a hub of analysis on critical energy issues across the world. The center's work on Saudi Arabia's energy policy, the emergence of a post-sanctions Iranian energy sector, and the impact of the U.S. energy boom in the Middle East helped to establish it as an important voice uh, on these pressing issues in the region. We have a number of events uh, coming up with the Global Energy Center as well, and I hope that you'll be able to join us uh, for those too. But in the meantime, I hope you will uh, join me in welcoming uh, this really great panel that we have uh, assembled here uh, to the Atlantic Council stage. Uh, starting, of course, with Dr. Salam Fayyad, uh, who has been a very good friend uh, to the Council and is a distinguished statesman with the Council's Brent Scowcroft Center, former Prime Minister and former Minister of Finance of the Palestinian Authority. In the very short time I've had an opportunity to know and uh, meet Dr. Fayyad, uh, I've learned much from his wealth of knowledge and experience. Uh, Dr. Fayyad, it's a great pleasure uh, to host you again, and given your illustrious career, we're really looking forward to your thoughts uh, on these uh, issues. Also welcoming Sherry Goodman, uh, an Atlantic Council board director and renowned expert on environment, climate security, and energy. Uh, Sherry previously served as president and CEO of the Consortium for Ocean Leadership uh, and senior vice president, uh, general counsel, and corporate secretary of CNA. Sherry, thanks for joining us. Uh, Sherry, to me, has very much been uh, both a leader and a mentor in the field and is very much uh, responsible. Uh, hopefully in a good way for my uh, growing uh, uh, interest and uh, work in the areas of energy security and environmental uh, security. Also joining us uh, is Karen Elliott, uh, Karen Elliott House, former publisher uh, of the Wall Street Journal, senior vice president of Dow Jones and Company, uh, and author of On Saudi Arabia, Its People, Past, Religion, Fault Lines, and Future. Karen's experience on Saudi Arabia's domestic dynamics will be particularly invaluable in today's discussion. And I should say that uh, Fred Kemp asked me very specifically uh, to uh, say the following to you, and I am doing this and I'm going to report to him that I, I did so. Uh, and you can put Fred Kemp quotes on this. He said, Ab, please uh, convey to her absolutely my warmest greetings, not apparently his somewhat warmest greetings, but his absolutely warmest greetings, and that you were his favorite boss ever, after which he put three exclamation points which I've never seen Fred do. So please, when you speak to him, tell him that I did convey that uh, as, he, as he asked me to. Thank you for joining us. Uh, welcome. We also have Rad uh, Al-Qadiri, uh, who is the Managing Director for Petroleum Sector Risk at IHS uh, Energy, uh, with over 20 years of experience as an executive advisor to oil and gas companies, national oil companies, uh, and governments uh, worldwide. Rod, nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us uh, as well. And last, but certainly not least, uh, especially because she will be running the discussion for us today, is Elise Labatt, uh, a global affairs correspondent with CNN, and our moderator for today's session. Elise has reported from more than 75 countries and has been at the center of major global events, including most recently conflicts in Syria, Ukraine, and uh, Israel.
Israel. So thank you again all for joining us. Uh, for those of you online and for those of you here uh, so disposed, please follow us uh, using at AC Skullcraft or hashtag AC uh, Middle East. Uh, and I will get out of the way now and please let, uh, that, welcome our panel and let the discussion begin. Thank you. Thanks, Dan, and thanks to the Atlantic Council, and thank you um, all of us, all of you for joining us. I think we're going to have a really um, interesting discussion, not just about the political, but the economic ramifications of what's really, truly um, a historic time for um, oil prices and, and the dynamic um, in the Middle East. Um, I, I think, Rod, I, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, moderate a discussion um, for a while, and then we'll open it up. Uh, to your questions, because we're interested to see what, what you're interested in uh, talking about. Rod, let's, let's just set the scene here. It, what is going on with these historic low oil prices in the region? What's driving OPEC policy? And what particularly are the major producers, such as uh, Saudi Arabia, trying to achieve here? Um, <clears throat> thank you for inviting me this morning. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I think you have an, a combination of factors that are playing out at this moment in time. Um, some of them relate to market dynamics and the reality of market dynamics, it's okay. it's um, okay. both long-term and short-term. But there's also a, a critical political element that's come in that perhaps accounts for where we are right now and, and where we may go from here um, that, is, that is becoming increasingly the factor that sort of one looks at in terms of trying to determine the future. From, from a market dynamics point of view, I mean, where we are is, is partly miscalculation and partly the reality of, of supply and demand. I think as, as OPEC and particularly Saudi Arabia looked out over the horizon in 2014, what it saw was you know, unprecedented growth in the United States in terms of unconventional. What it saw was high prices supporting a whole host of very expensive conventional projects around the world. And OPEC and Saudi Arabia in particular sort of felt that their position and their market share was going to be increasingly under threat. I think there was also a calculation that was made by OPEC leaders, critically Saudi Arabia, that if oil prices were reduced by a limited amount from the roughly $100 a barrel that they were at, that that would have an impact not just on supply growth outside of OPEC, but conceivably could start to lead to a certain amount of supply destruction and therefore putting OPEC in a, in a much stronger place. Um, I think on the demand side, there was an anticipation that you would continue to see strong demand out of Asia, particularly out of China, and that therefore you would have a situation over a period of a couple of quarters, maybe a little longer, sort of looking ahead into 2015, that would leave OPEC in, in a very strong position, that would lead Saudi Arabia in a strong position, and in a strong position where they had ca actually captured more market share. That didn't happen. The problem is that particularly the US industry proved to be far more robust, far more resilient. Um, I think there was a, a lack of understanding as to the nature of unconventionals in the United States and a lack of understanding as to how it responded, how it was established, that the companies that were 
you know, predominantly responsible for the for the unconventional. And we're talking boom. primarily shale here. Yeah, so. absolutely. That you know the unconventional oil boom were a different type of company to the ones that sort of OPEC was used to dealing with, um, and was very different to the types of companies that national oil companies are. And so you had that miscalculation that drove the price down. But I think that's where we start to sort of get into some of the issues of politics. So while that price came down and you didn't have a sort of large demand kick in China in particular as a result of slightly lower prices, OPEC finds itself in a, in a position where it was caught in no man's land. But I think the key element that has driven it down further has been an issue of regional politics. And it's been an issue of Saudi-Iranian dynamics. And really, a, a, an uncertainty on the Saudi part as to what the Iran nuclear deal would mean for Saudi policy, and for, sorry, for Iranian oil policy, but also regional competition that's getting more intense, that's getting more violent, that's you know, being fought out on a whole host of different dimensions um, through proxy wars, et cetera, but where oil is vitally important and where the Saudis and other key Gulf states in OPEC are unwilling to respond despite very low prices, um, in part for uncertain, in part because of uncertainty about where Iran is going to go with its production, but also to ensure that the Iranians don't get a financial windfall that would come from rising prices. So, in in a sense, it, it's putting a fiscal squeeze on Iran, and you know, I would argue that that probably more than anything else right now, is what is sustaining the very low price, as opposed to sort of seeing. OPEC respond and OPEC react in a way that we would sort of associate more traditionally with the organization. Let's pick up on the political dynamic. Karen, you know, right now Saudi Arabia, when you look at how the internal dynamics of a country could be affected by oil, I mean, I think we look, you know, first to Saudi Arabia, the, maybe the most at-risk Gulf country you know, the leader of this Gulf assertiveness against Iran, you know, let's talk about whether that, you know, external threat by Iran is going to have an internal threat to the regime through its oil policies. You know, the royal family is having new challenges with this, with the new, uh, with the new hierarchy. Um, there's challenges between the kingdom and the region and between the regime and the U.S. So let's talk about the risks to Saudi internal dynamics as a result of these low oil prices. <clears throat> I'm just back from having spent the month of January there, and I would say in the short run, the enmity with Iran is certainly helping create internal support for the regime. Mm -hmm. um, the austerity measures that they've introduced to deal with the lower oil revenues of the kingdom, you know, haven't yet hit anybody uh, very hard. They will at some point, um, but I would say this year the royal family's probably uh, maybe one of its best years in the <laughs> next half dozen, you know, in terms of, uh, of public support. People are saying, and they were saying this actually a year ago, um, at least we're not killing each other here. The, the growing violence in the whole region has made people in Saudi Arabia who were full of frustration in the years between 2006 and 12 when I was reporting my book, 
I think they still have a lot of frustration, but they have a greater sense of we don't want to be killing each other like the Syrians, like the Libyans, like uh, um, the Iraqis. Uh, so, and the Iranian en enemy has really um, rallied people. They like, I believe, the majority. They stand up to Yemen, stand up to Iran, and never mind that the U.S. is hunkering or cowering, whichever way you choose to look at it. Um, we can do this. Um, we have to do this. But do you think that, okay, so right now, you know, they're not feeling the pain, maybe that much. The austerity measures have yet to kick in. But let's talk about the risk to the sustainability of a regime like this, you know, that's dependent on, you know, oil for revenues of their own legitimacy and power. You know, when those big checks stop coming, um, is it, you know, a house of cards in the sense that, you know, frustration will build up and, and these reforms will not be, you know, pain-free? What happens to the stability of the regime when the loyalty that the Saudi people feel? Yeah, well, clearly the whole um, um, social contract, as one would put it, has been uh, originally sort of... Um, loyalty for stability, then it became loyalty for prosperity, and um, now it may go back to loyalty for stability or it may crack because um, there clearly is going to come a time unless, I mean, I think um, my impression from this visit is no one is really yet faced up to the fact this could go on for a long time. So they keep hoping um, that something will turn up as it has in the past. When oil prices are low, you stop paying foreign companies, you do a lot of things, but you never stop paying your people who mostly are working for the government. And you get through it and the price turns up and everything turns out fine. You never have to face. But what they're now promising, I mean, Mohammed bin Salman is saying, I read the whole 160-page McKinsey report, and they stress that the McKinsey report is not their policy. But um, nonetheless, they say we're going to privatize the economy, you're not going to work for the government anymore, you're going to have to uh, make your own way. And if people really do find that to be true, that they are going to have to go through the wrenching adjustment of not having a government job, working in the private sector where they can be fired. Um, that's going to be a huge wrench for the company, uh, country. But if, it, if they get there, then what do they need the royal family for? Uh, if I have to depend on myself, what are they doing for me? Uh, and I think, you know, that's obviously the long-term dynamic that they uh, confront, so I think they still are hoping something will turn up and sort of preparing to have to shove people out more mm. if nothing does turn up. Dr. Fayad, how, do the, how does a country like Saudi Arabia and to, and to some extent the smaller nations do that um, in the short term? Because you know, in the long term it might seem like a feasible policy, but it definitely seems as if the pain will be, if it's not being felt now because of regional dynamics, 
and more you know, national, Arab nationalism, it's going to be felt. How does Saudi Arabia kind of, or more even some of these smaller countries, stop the, the triage? Uh, thank you. Uh, my sense is that under either scenario, one of doing nothing or little relative to what needs to be done to confront the crisis on the one hand, or on the other, to do something to adjust to the new reality of low oil prices, there's going to be a substantial pain. My own assessment is the pain is going to be a lot more manageable if there is a credible adjustment to the new reality. Absent that, the pain is upon us, and I think not only Saudi Arabia, but oil exporting countries in the region face a very, very serious risk. It's very substantial, but my sense is that it is vastly underappreciated. Uh, the region is going through a very serious and jarring impact of this new reality of low oil prices, and I, as countries, oil exporting countries, some of which are highly, highly dependent on hydrocarbon proceeds. For example, the GCC, including Saudi Arabia. Uh, hydrocarbon proceeds account for nearly 70% of their export of goods and services and 80% of their fiscal revenues. This is major. And when you have a reality of the kind that the region is facing these days uh, of low oil prices, and I think from all appearances, one that's going to be for a very protracted period of time. Uh, question that comes to mind, one of the first questions anyway, have we seen this before? Have we seen this kind of uh, boom, bust, and bust before? Wishfully, one can say yes, but more realistically, the answer is probably not. If you compare what the region is going through right now as a consequence of dramatic fall in oil prices since mid-2014 to, for example, the boom and bust of the 1980s and 90s of last century, this is substantially different. And it is so at least in two important senses. One, where oil prices today is only about 25 to 30 percent of recent peaks. Whereas in the 80s and 90s, the prices stabilized for the most part, for much of the period, the 20-year period, at about two-thirds of the 1980 peak, except for the dip in oil prices that took place in 1998, which was short-lived. That's number one. Number two, there's nothing in the outlook, at least in the way I see things, that suggests to me this is going to be short-lived. From all indications, given the factors, that Dr. Kladir mentioned, both on the demand side and what the world is going to through in terms of, uh, as Larry Sommer calls it, uh, secular stagnation on the demand side, and also happenings in China, uh, and also emerging markets and the rest of it, but probably more significantly on the supply side. I myself am not sure that what we see these days in terms of weak oil prices or weak oil market developments generally, is something that would not have happened even without the Saudis doing what Dr. Kadri said early on to try to kind of get the prices to go down somewhat. This was something that was going to be inevitable given new supply realities. All of this said, 
What does it tell us? Is this something that countries in the region generally, including Saudi Arabia, all exporting countries, can weather by sustaining and running fiscal deficits for many years, as they did, for example, in the 80s and 90s of last century, which they did? Both Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates, for example, ran sizable fiscal deficits for 15 years. There is a very serious question these days as to whether that is at all feasible. I don't think so. And so, back to the fundamental question you raised, is there going to be pain relative to what the social contract is understood to be in the event that countries in the region, oil exporting countries, including Saudi Arabia, embark on the kind of bold, dramatic adjustment, fiscal adjustment that is needed. And I'm afraid measures like privatization are not going to really, you know, get it done by themselves. It takes a while, right? I mean, First that's... of all, it takes a while. Secondly, by themselves, you know, privatization measures do not sustainably reduce fiscal deficits, you know, unless the effort to privatize is accompanied by significant measures to reduce deficit, especially on the revenue side, non-oil revenues, that is, but also on the expenditure side, maybe some other policies and complementarities that need to be explored, and I can talk about this. Unless those things are done, privatization by itself is not going to really get it done. There's, can you ask him why, you, why they can't run the 15-year big deficits? Oh, yeah. like why that's not an option now? Yeah, Karen, you just asked me. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, but okay. he said that, and that's a, yeah, a no, big okay. thing, I think. Uh, I, I think, for one thing, uh, fiscal space, if you will, that countries have, given the new realities of oil markets, has shrunk substantially. Um, actually, the 80s and 90s episode, again, for one thing, yes, uh, prices dipped substantially around 85, 86 in particular. Uh, many bad things happened. But for much of the period, if you look at the price developments, you will find that prices stabilized about two-thirds of the 1980 peak. Where are we today is 25%, maybe, at most 30% notwithstanding the bump in oil prices over the past 48 hours in connection with this uh, agreement to constrain output. At what level? January of the sea level, which was not low. Uh, so then, I think, given the oil boom of the 70s and the rest of it, countries had some space to begin with. It was first such experience, if you will. Uh, they were able to manage uh, and borrow in, in, in some instances. Uh, this time around, what, when you look at what we call fiscal space is, is very limited. Some of the countries, I mean, of course, most countries did accumulate sizable assets, time of boom, there's no question about that. Call it a buffer, you know, that would provide, uh, again, shock absorber in the event of a crisis of the kind that countries are facing. But what is the size of that buffer today? How many years, in other words, can countries go on spending at about the same level they've been sp spending since, let's say, 2013, how many years they can, go, can they go forward without adjusting to the new reality? The numbers are quite dramatic and, in fact, uh, startlingly uh, scary, uh, if you ask me. For some, uh, some countries, that buffer is less than three years. Some of the countries in the region, for them, the buffer is pretty much zero, non-existent. Um, for some, notably the UAE, Qatar and Kuwait, the buffer is sizable, about 25, Some of these countries, 25 years. But in any event, just, just to close the thought, what we're really talking about here is, is really very 
small and limited fiscal space in which to, to, to maneuver. Some of these countries are yeah. paying at least lip service to the idea of diversification. How, how quickly can, you know, this, how much is this actually happening? Because uh, we were talking before the session that maybe it's not as much as people think, but how quickly could it happen if these countries chose to diversify in, in some of the other areas they're going to need to over the coming years if, if this is a long-term trend? It is a long-term trend, and, and countries will definitely uh, need to invest seriously uh, in order, uh, in the direction of producing uh, a more diversification. Uh, some have uh, achieved greater measure of success in the sphere than others, uh, notably the UAE, for example, uh, was reading some statistics about certain developments, including in tourism, for example, economic activity. Dubai Airport last year was the busiest in the world. 78 million people passed through it. This is quite substantial. However, uh, even though there's progress there, I think what is masked is the reality of the extent to which the direct impact associated with the reduction or decline in oil prices. Uh, it is understated by the significant macroeconomic financial linkages, including in the UAE. Yes, there is a direct impact associated with reduction in oil prices, but given the very strong interaction uh, in the macroeconomic financial sphere, you will find actually that direct impact, even though it may be smaller in the UAE, it's still very sizable, given the interaction between asset prices and credit, for example. So time of declining oil prices, you'll find actually that no country uh, will be spurred the devastating impact of what is going on and what is likely to continue to go on. And that's my other point. I mean, I just don't see this ending at a time soon, given supply conditions, you know, developments on the supply side. Um, Sherry, let's talk about a little bit more in a regional context and the you know, horrible security situation that's taking place right now. You have, you know, civil wars in Syria, Iraq to some extent, Yemen, um, you know, countries like Egypt, Tunisia, Jordan, all, you know, also um, some would call, you know, engines of instability. Um, let's talk about how this price uh, decline is impacting the region's, you know, very tenuous uh, security situation. Well, thank you, Elise, and it's a privilege to serve to be on this panel with these uh, distinguished, uh, with the distinguished panelists today. And uh, thank you to the Atlantic Council for convening uh, this event. So, you know, as Fred Kemp likes to say, you know, we're at an inflection point, and I think we are clearly here at an inflection point um, in the Middle East. I mean, we have a region that, for the post-Cold War years, has been characterized by stability, uh, stability primarily of its political systems and stability of its oil. Uh, whether we agreed with all the political systems, but there was a stability upon which U.S. security and U.S. national interests have critically depended uh, for most of our lifetimes, uh, if not even somewhat longer. And now we find ourselves in an era of instability uh, for at least the last decade, an era of, of instability, um, both in the political systems, as you noted, um, civil wars and terrorism, states on the verge of failure uh, from Egypt, Tunisia, Jordan, and also um, 
a region now characterized by instability of oil prices. And although it certainly we are not at the end of the hydrocarbon era, uh, we may be at the beginning of the beginning of more diversified uh, economies and, and, and possibly ultimately more diversified political systems in the region as well. Uh, and so that, you know, that leads us into, into a whole new era. And that diversification to me is quite interesting because we've always thought of, you know, we've characterized, and I see some of my uh, fellow CNA military advisory board members here, uh, General Wald and Admiral Gunn, um, and we've spent much of the last decade trying to think through uh, the connections between natural resources and security. And uh, certainly we live in a, in a, we always characterize the Middle East as a region um, uh, flush with, with oil, uh, but scarce in water. And now we see that other natural resources have an important role to play um, in the future and the future stability of this region. And I would mention water, you know, in particular, because water scarcity is not only, you know, it's not only an economic and humanitarian challenge, but it does have geostrategic impacts, and it will in this region. Uh, because, and, and countries like UAE and some others have begun to really appreciate that and I think integrate that into their um, growth policy. Um, but as supplies of fresh water dwindle, you know, states are beginning to jockey for access to them. And you know, we already see this happening in Egypt, which has squabbled with Ethiopia over its construction of the massive uh, dam, uh, hydroelectric dam on the Nile. And we see that uh, food and water are increasingly going to be elements of the geostrategic equation as well as oil in the region. Rod, you know, obviously Saudi Arabia has a major advantage here. You know, twice the oil reserves, three times production capacity than Iran. And Iran's oil fields, you know, we're expecting, you know, Iran wants to increase its production, um, but its oil fields are going to need some, you know, serious uh, investment in technology and is going to be depending on, you know, foreign investment to some extent. So given the fact that, for instance, Iran is a gl global leader in natural gas that Saudi Arabia is, is going to need in the future, do you think that there is a kind of win-win here, you know, is this an area, you know, to kind of turn these tensions into economic cooperation? Can, you know, Saudi Arabia make some investments in Iran's oil um, infrastructure where Iran, you know, helps Saudi Arabia, for instance, with, with natural gas? I, I see you laughing a bit, but... Well, no, I'm, I'm laughing only because the region is full of win-wins that it manages to lose-lose. So, um, and, and, and I think, you know, Saudi-Iranian relations are at the forefront of that right now. But let, let, me, let me answer the question in a slightly different way, which is another way to say I've got something to say. And it, it's, 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 it's partly a counter-narrative, but it, it goes to sort of all of the comments that have been made by, by my colleagues here. And the counter-narrative is, is perhaps this. The region is, is going through a, a turbulent and very dangerous period. But those dangers may be more fundamental and they may, may be more immediate than we realize and they have nothing to do with oil. Um, in the sense that, you know, when you look at Saudi Arabia, and, and, and I agree absolutely with, with Dr. Fayyad's analysis, except for a couple of points that are pertinent. One is that 
when you look at the situation that Saudi Arabia is in right now and the Gulf states are in right now compared to the situation that they were in in 1998, 1999, there is a fundamental difference. And it's one that gives the Saudis, despite the increase in non-discretionary spending that the Saudis face, it gives the Saudis tremendous leeway that they didn't have before. You know, they have over $600 billion of reserves. In 1998, they had close to 45 billion, which was roughly what they needed to keep the real peg with the dollar. They were virtually bankrupt. So you have, you know, that, that buffer is not insignificant. But there's also a reality, and I've been through enough sort of boom-bust cycles in the oil industry in, in my professional career now to sort of learn to be cautious about predicting prices. But you also have a reality that is that these low prices and the levels of prices that we have are such that there is bound to be a pickup because you're seeing supply destruction and you are seeing investment being halted. So as you get to the end of this decade, it could be that as much as 5 million barrels a day of anticipated new supply that was there sort of on the books to be invested in won't get investment. What about the increase, though, in you know, not only Iranian but Iraqi and Libyan oil? Well, but again, go back to that, and this is where oil prices play in. You, know, you have to have companies invest and countries invest in this. Iraq's a great example. Now, you know, Iraq has been sort of at the high, the, 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 you know, the forefront of everybody's you know, poster child for production increases over the last, well, certainly through 2015. There's a lot of fuzzy maths in that. You know, 700,000 barrels a day or so of increased production, of which 550 came from the north, which was either shut-in production or Kurdish smuggling that was put on the books formally. You know, what you actually had in terms of real increases in production, in terms of what went to market, was probably sort of closer to 150, 200,000. That's not insignificant. Iran needs investment. Libya needs investment. And under the current circumstances, this is the point about the security, under the current circumstances, and with countries unable to pay companies to invest, you're not going to get the increase there. But think about this from a slightly different angle in terms of low oil price and what it means in terms of some of these dynamics. And if you do feel like Saudi Arabia, I suspect, feels that it has a certain buffer. What you have is a set of regional powers, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Turkey, Israel to a lesser extent, that are fighting a regional war for influence. And at present, it is a zero-sum game. It is not about managing crises in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, in Yemen. It has actually been about fighting proxy wars there. It is Lebanon in the 1970s, 1980s, writ large, over a huge area. And at this moment in time, part of that oil price sort of policy is almost the sense that there is greater value or greater virtue in chaos. There is more to be gained in the current chaos than there is in managing the, 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 the issues. Now, you have two, two serious things that come out of that from a security point of view that, um, you know, aside from oil. One is that at this moment in time, you are threatening the boundaries and the territorial integrity of a variety of states that will be very difficult to put back together again. It's very difficult to see Iraq or Syria looking the same in five years as they did five years ago. And that's critical. 
If that doesn't happen in a managed way, the inevitability of spillover, it's already being seen. Mm. So there's no containment policy. So I think you know, looking at some of the oil from a, from a political prism is it's fine to say that there is a regional battle between Saudi Arabia and Iran and oil is part of it and putting pressure on finances of Iran is a way of doing it. But I don't think we're paying as much attention to the fact that you know, the Middle East is going through a transformation that's not about just about regimes. It's about the fundamental stability of borders and mm. the nature of how you contain violence on a massive scale. Well, Karen, let's, let's bring the U.S. into this equation, I mean, and the West. I mean, for years you've had this security kind of bargain uh, where Middle East producers led by Saudi Arabia, you know, kept oil, reasonable prices, West guaranteed security. As the, less, as the U.S. becomes less dependent, for instance, on Saudi oil, on Middle Eastern oil. Um, what does that do to the dynamic where, you know, for instance, uh, the U.S. is, you know, has been charged of, of, you know, abandoning the region? And, and does the, do these producers look to other powers, such as China, such as India, um, to not only as, as consumers, but to guarantee security, protect sea lanes, um, and, you know, do they look more towards an Asian um, bend? I, one of my most firm impressions from this trip is the Saudis have pretty much given up on the U.S. They would like us to do more, but they do not believe it will happen. The question asked most frequently, actually, was does Barack Obama represent the United States or does is he an eight-year aberration? Um, and while I have many complaints about Obama's performance in the Middle East, I'm not sure that the American public is interested in a much more assertive role in that part of the world. So I think you know the the Saudis seem to observe everything you described um, and have the view that somehow we have to keep Arabia out of, out of the chaos that's going on in all the rest of the Middle East as the historical borders drawn by other people come undone. Our borders weren't drawn by other people. We can hang on to this. We can, um, if we don't uh, allow a situation to develop in Yemen, uh, for instance, where the Iranians are asked to come in, and thus the world says they were invited by a, quote, government. Um, so nothing we can do about it. Um, I mean, I, I just think the Saudis feel under enormous uh, pressure. But I personally don't think they're panicked. Um, I think they think they can find a way to get through with their 600 billion, with curbing, cutting things back, uh, cutting King Abdullah scholarships, raising oil prices, cutting electricity, taxing land that's not developed, uh, charging more to people that uh, make the uh, pilgrimage to Mecca, that there are means of bringing in money, developing uh, other industries, which is long term, but that is if they can just keep showing a path forward if something doesn't turn up, that they can keep their people 
at least calm because when you look out the your bars, the rest of the world is eating each other. So inside your Saudi prison, uh, and you can fly out to other places, but inside your bars, you know, at least you're not killing each other. Sherry, what do, what do you think of that? I mean, not only in terms of can they, you know, can they hold out, can the Saudis hold out politically? Maybe not, you know, we can talk about economically, but politically, can they, can they hold out? And what about this idea um, that maybe this long time, you know, decades long security bargain um, with the U.S. as the U.S. becomes less dependent on uh, Saudi and Middle Eastern oil dissipates. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, you made a really good point earlier that the markets, global markets, were surprised um, by the resilience of the shale producers um, and their ability to adjust to changing conditions. And many say now that the U.S. has become the swing producer of oil. And so that, I think, has had a dramatic impact. The U.S. now thinks of itself as an energy superpower in a way it didn't, both uh, from the shale revolution and also where, you know, the, the, the planet is on the verge of moving into a clean energy era, a cleaner energy era. Not, I mean, hydrocarbons will, of course, continue to be important for our foreseeable lifetime, but I think they, they, there will be increasing diversity um, in energy, um, in energy sources, um, and then the money to be made from those alternative energy sources, whether it's gas or whether it's renewables um, and other technologies not on the horizon yet. And so I think we see the collapse of the, you know, the of the post-war Arab state system seems to be on the horizon, and it's really not a question so much of whether but when, and. Um, you know, I think as you see, you know, you know, the Saudi perspective, which Karen so well described, you know, reflects that there's uncertainty. Uncertainty and instability is the new normal in the region. And, you know, the Saudi perspective is that the U.S. is uncertain and, and we don't provide the modicum of stability to the region that we used to. But I think that goes part and parcel to sort of changing global dynamics, and, and you also see now increasingly it's really not just about the West and the Middle East, but China and India increasingly are important actors in the region. And so, you know, then I think the US, this leads the U.S. to at a place where it really needs to understand increasingly the risks. Uh, we have a major force posture in the region. There's a lot of uncertainty increasingly associated with the U.S. force posture in the region, the ability to project force and the ability to rely on um, the bases, uh, Bahrain and the other hubs of U.S. presence in the region. Uh, and so there's a, a lot of work that uh, is being done and will continue to need to be done in, a, in order to project force, even um, if the U.S. does not try to, to lead um, a major reform but just tries to uh, protect its vital interests between uh, of terror, you know, protecting against terrorism, um, protecting its its remaining oil interests in the region, and of course Israel as a vital as a critical ally. The Saudis, I might just add on that, have you know started this 34 nation uh, Islamic coalition. The president of China was there in January. Um, there are reports that King Salman's going to Russia and. 
the, the Russians have said, the king is saying not so fast, but you know, they clearly are engaged in major outreach. I mean, there's some head of state or foreign minister in, in Riyadh virtually every day in the month I was there. Dr. Fayad, from a financial policy perspective and an economic perspective, can, can the Saudis weather the storm? Or, I mean, what are the fundamental changes yeah. um, that you see? Uh, they can. Uh, and this gives me an opportunity to actually comment briefly on what Karen said. She mentioned the number of measures uh, that Saudi authorities are considering, and not also, only in Saudi Arabia, but in other countries as well, uh, oil exporting countries in the region, GCC uh, and beyond. My uh, point is that so far, the measures taken so far, there are two points I would like to make on this. Number one, the measures taken so far are too modest relative to the scale of the fiscal challenge. And the scale of the fiscal challenge is enormous, notwithstanding the point made by uh, Dr. Khadri about the size of the buffer Saudi Arabia has today. It's substantial, $600 billion, a lot of money uh, for an economy, about $750 billion economy. Yeah, it's substantial some money. But we are 18 years beyond the episode that he referred to, 1998, 1999. This is, this is, yes, they did have $45 billion then only compared to $600 billion today, but that's 18 years later. My point is, on current trends, oil prices, likely all proceeds on the one hand, expenditure on the other, assuming no adjustment, the buffer appears to be a lot more sizable than it really is. I'm not saying a crisis the money is upon will run us. Out is what you're yes, saying. I'm not saying that the crisis is upon us tomorrow. But what I'm saying is, unless significant, incredible adjustment measures are taken, and I don't mean by that immediately, in all of those measures taken today, producing maximum impact today. What I'm really talking about is the need for not only Saudi Arabia, but oil exporting countries in the region generally to adopt in a hurry binding medium-term fiscal adjustment programs that are credible. I know I've been there before. I know countries in the region talked about diversification before, and they didn't achieve as much progress as was hoped for before. But the crisis this time around is substantially different. You're calling it, for major structural major, reforms. Major reform and adjustment on the fiscal side, importantly. There are other issues, there's no question. But, but the key challenge on the fiscal side, meaning expenditure, level of expenditure, Karen mentioned some measures, also importantly revenues. I myself have strong preference for emphasis to be there within those, in the design of the macro fiscal uh, adjustment frameworks necessary on the revenue side, not on the expenditure side, for a variety of reasons. Number one, it would be less contractionary if you were to do it on the revenue side than if you were to do it on the expenditure side. Two, governments in the economies of those regions play a very substantial role in economic activity, both directly and indirectly. And the social contract is a lot more likely to be vulnerable under a scenario of drastic cut in expenditures, including what appear to be modest cuts here and there. Increasing revenues or doing something but the revenue side of budget, non-oil revenues, is likely to be less taxing, so to speak, uh, less of a burden 
from the point of view of the, uh, of the social contract that we've been talking about, than doing it on the expenditure side. Once again, we're not talking about doing everything today for results to obtain next year. Fiscal buffer is sizable enough to give Saudi Arabia and other countries in the region, most other countries in the region, enough space to undertake the adjustments. But people need to know today, looking five years down the road, that there is going to be fiscal sustainability. Do you think that kind of... Yes, yes. Do you think this kind of strategic thinking exists right now in the region? I, you know, I read about uh, efforts to do things, for example, on the revenue side of budget and fairness. There's been... Uh, uh, advanced state of discussion on introducing VAT uh, in the JCC. This is important, and if I may talk about this, an issue of fiscal sustainability, um, perceptions, it's extremely important, it's extremely important. In addition to the trends that I talked about, uh, oil revenues, current expenditures, where things are on the non-revenue side of budget, what is the likely evolution of oil prices going forward? I mean, beyond what happened, you know, 1988, 99, the dip was short-lived. Um, can we say the same thing about what the markets are going through today, given all of the supply considerations, given the shale uh, evolution, given all of these other factors? Probably not. Probably not. We're looking at a protracted period of low prices. How low? Probably as low as $20. This may sound outlandish. But this is Everyone as much. Everyone in this room is happy about that. You know, <laughs> maybe as low as $20. Look, I mean, up until a week ago, we were in the mid-20s, and so far as Brent was concerned. Only last year, less la last year, this would have been viewed as an extremely pessimistic scenario. A lot of people were wishfully thinking that prices were going to recover to the $60 range by 2016. We already are in 2016. Today, the prices are at about $35 a barrel. Mm -hmm. Only 30% of recent peak. So what is the likely evolution period ahead? I think on the lower end of the range, probably 20, because that's how much it would cost to store a barrel of oil that's extracted but not sold. On the high side, on the high side, given shale and all of that sort of thing, probably around $60 a barrel. That's the range we're talking about. So this we're is, talking the, about, you don't see it going higher That's my guess. This is the range we're talking about, 20 to 60. Now, this is a wide range, admittedly. You're not going to make a lot of money speculating on the basis of wide range like this. But what really matters from the point of view of our discussion is the higher end of the range. It's likely to not exceed by much 60. That That's less than half of peak recent years. If this is the reality you're looking at, from the point of view of fiscal sustainability, you need to give market participants uh, uh, observers, people, sense of confidence that three to five years down the road, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and other countries in the region are going to be able to make up for the loss in revenues on a permanent basis. And that can obtain more simply by increasing non-oil revenues to the tune of 50% of overall revenues in 2013. Why 2013? Because this was the last year of sort of normal movement throughout the year. Mid-2014 was beginning of the decline, most recent decline. So take that as a baseline. Target increasing your overall revenues from non-oil sources so that they would constitute over time 50% of overall take, then everybody would have confidence today that you're going to be fiscally sustainable. Now, this may be sound too much, and it is. There, I think VAT is definitely needed, most definitely. That's that, you know, beyond anything, that's the most important thing. 
many things have undergone a lot of modernization in the GCC region. Not tax regimes, for income tax, for example. What about that? Property taxes. These are important sources of revenue, but most importantly, VAT. To the extent to, to which countries, including Saudi Arabia, would wish to do less on revenues, they would want to do something on the expenditure side. And that there may be some inefficiencies here and there, which countries would be you know, well advised to get rid of. But it would be a mistake to try to do it by cuts in public expenditure on investment. That's really a mistake. It would be very, very contractionary. It would disturb the social contract that we were talking about. And thirdly, there need to really be, I think, there need to, needs to be some consideration given to the appropriateness of continuing to maintain a currency peg in an environment of the kind that these countries are going through today. I know that we, this is an open meeting. I'm not talking about devaluation today or anything like that. I'm not even talking about allowing currencies to depreciate. But there is a serious question as to whether it's advisable to continue to maintain the peg per se in, under conditions of this kind. Because even if the fiscal buffer appears to be sizable or adequate to allow gradual adjustment, not too gradual, but gradual adjustment, there's a question to be asked as what might happen in the event in the event that there is a significant turn to the worst in sentiments, and what that might do, and what defending the peg would precipitate under those conditions. What appears to be a, 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 an adequate cushion may not, under those conditions, be that adequate after all. So that really is the lay of the land in so far as I think the issues are concerned. This is what needs to be considered in a hurry with a view to putting together macro frameworks that are credible, not to produce results tomorrow, but thought to be capable of producing results within the next three to five year period. Okay, let's um, open it up to questions. We have some microphones <coughs> coming around. If you could uh, identify yourself and, and keep your question to a question um, so we can get as many um, as possible. Um, okay, we're gonna start in the front row, then we're gonna go um, to this gentleman here and right here, thank you. Good morning, I'm Paula Stern. Very good to see you, Karen, after many years. Um, and thank you very much for the, uh, for the panel's uh, presentation. I'm a member of the Atlantic Council's Executive Committee. Um, and we've been focusing on, of course, the region of the Middle East, uh, focusing, I think, uh, very much on uh, supply. I'm wondering if we can open up this a little bit uh, to the rest of the world, and, and particularly regarding demand. There was one reference to China and slowing growth, um, and uh, I, I would like uh, you to kind of put this in a broader context, put this discussion in a broader context, context with regard to worldwide demand and what we're emphasizing. And then I have a specific question about sovereign wealth funds and the degree to which they um, uh, have, are obviously being impacted, but um, how concerning um, uh, within the worldwide macroeconomic supply and demand situation is the uh, viability of some of the sovereign wealth funds. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, Rod, why don't you take the um, issue of, you know, are we moving more towards an, uh, you know, as the U.S., as, we're talking about put it in a broader context, particularly in terms of um, is Asia, you know, maybe one of the no, new markets, it, right? When you look at oil market and conventional in terms of oil market analysis, is that Asia is going to be the, the place of growth. 
Um, and <clears throat> quite clearly, that you know, the, the, the slowdown in China and some of the changes that you're seeing within China itself in terms of its macroeconomic policy um, and, a, and a shift away from fixed investments is going to have probably an even more telling impact on, on Chinese demand um, because it starts to impact on particular fuel types. <clears throat> but that said, I mean, the last year has been also been telling um, in terms of the diversity of demand growth, um, not just the disappointments in terms of China and you know, the assumption that Chinese growth would last forever, which was always a, a false assumption. Um, and I think you know, what you saw last year was not unsizable demand growth out of countries like India, other places in Asia that have managed to sustain a fair amount of growth, also sort of adding to that slate. The Middle East itself being a strong demand growth center. And, you know, going to Dr. Fayyad's comments about sort of what it would, the impact that sort of various measures might have in terms of a contraction <clears throat> or contractionary effect on Middle East macroeconomics, um, you may see sort of some move into that. But the you know, reality is the Middle East has been an important demand growth area as much as it's been an important in terms of supply over time. So what that means is that, yes, there's been disappointment, but what you haven't seen is an absolute collapse in demand. What you haven't seen is the slowdown in China hitting demand to the levels that, you know, I think doomsayers may, may, may have anticipated, that if China goes down, then demand growth around the rest of the world goes down. It just, it just hasn't been that case. What's been more interesting is that low, low oil prices haven't necessarily led to a demand kicker. Normally, you would see you know, some sort of knee-jerk reaction in demand, and it would increase. I think that's probably more telling in terms of long-term fundamentals. But at this moment in time, you, you haven't seen that. Um, <clears throat> so you know, you have a world that is, in, in that sense, is out of balance in terms of supply and demand. But it's, you know, it's also out of balance in a way that, you know, is not, is not beyond the pale in terms of providing reinforcement for prices over the medium term, both by politics in terms of OPEC, but also, as I say, what the impact of low oil prices now does to investment. This is a secular, secular business for a reason. And part of that is if companies don't invest, then you don't get growth. And in some cases, you're going to get demand destruction. And if that, ha sorry, supply destruction. If that happens, it alters the balance and you start to see a situation in which you could have support for higher prices on a more sustainable basis. Dr. Fayad, you want to quickly just take the issue of sovereign wealth funds, um, A, can they help weather this storm? And B, um, is there um, a concern here that they'll run out? For sure they can, uh, both directly and also in terms of enabling uh, countries to borrow uh, against the uh, available funds and, uh, and all. And some of this happens. I mean, uh, probably it's happening as we speak uh, because there's no way I could well, there's been a, a major swing in the finances of countries in the region to the tune of 15 percentage points of GDP in 2015 relative to 2014. I mean, when you have that kind of a jarring impact in your uh, fiscal position, clearly you're going to dip into the reserves uh, and or borrow against them. And the combination of the above, I think, is likely to continue to need to take place for um, a few years going forward. The question is, how far can you really go uh, down that path 
without beginning to adversely impact perceptions uh, about your sustainability. And that's why, in addition to everything else that Kingdom Saudi Arabia is, is, is considering, like privatization and all, all of this has to really be done in the context of a credible and convincing macroeconomic adjustment framework on the fiscal side. I mean, I cannot really adequately uh, emphasize the importance of this particular issue. If that is done, uh, then this can be weathered, and it would contribute to diversification that we're really talking about. If somehow, you know, uh, market participants uh, were to get to the point of believing that five years down the road, uh, GCC countries, oil exporting countries in the region more generally, would be fiscally sustainable on the strength of a rise in non-oil revenues to the tune of 50% of their overall revenues, then what is the problem? In my view, there'd be no problem. And that improvement doesn't have to happen today. All that needs to happen is for people to believe that that is going to happen. And, and that does require you know, beginning to do things in a hurry to avoid those kind of really effects. Uh, if I may uh, comment on state of the economy, I, I agree. I mean, we're, we're in a state of weakness. I mean, uh, some expecting actually even global recession uh, that we may be adding. Uh, maybe that's too gloomy. But we are in a state of weakness. And in so far as industrial countries are concerned, the United States included, certainly, Europe and others, it appears as though those countries have entered into a phase of very low growth. That is when they grow. Uh, these are really the, the main engines. GCC, uh, as Rad as said, uh, yeah, accounted for significant, you know, a portion of global demand that's not insignificant. I mean, today, if it were one country as a block, it would be ranked about 17th economy in the world. I mean, that's, that's quite sizable. But, I mean, that once engine of growth for regional economies, oil importers and the rest of it, and global economy, how can it really be performed function of an engine growing at about 2% annually? I mean, that's very low. That's extremely low from the point of view of social contract and everything else. This is the way of the land that we're looking at. Thank you. Yeah. Good morning. My name is Rob Mossbacker. With the exception of, of three and a half years uh, as head of OPIC, I've spent my entire life in the oil and gas business as chairman uh, of a small independent and on the board of a large independent. Uh, that large independent just about two weeks ago announced we were cutting our capital expenditure from $4 billion to $1 billion. This is going on all over the industry, not just in the United States, but across the world. And then we've already touched on uh, state oil companies that have lower revenues and less capacity. Uh, and so I would like us to offer a slightly counter-narrative, Fayette, to what you said in terms of how long will this low last. It may stabilize lower, but I think the Saudis, by helping feed this, have actually helped drive a price down to the level where the cutbacks in investment are so sizable and so irreversible in the short term uh, that you will actually end up with a bridge between uh, demand and supply. And, you know, we have a bad history in our industry of sort of stampeding in one direction until we've practically gone off the cliff, all of us, and then we stampede the other direction, and we forget about the middle. So I guess the, the point I would make is I think that there is actually a shortage coming. Nobody can say exactly when, but I'd say sooner rather than later because the declines on shale production are quite sharp in terms of level of production. So I look at 17 as a year where there could be a fundamental shift in the perception of supply and demand, which will result in a higher increase, which is not, is not 
uh, frankly, uh, what the, Sa the Saudis okay. want. So uh, I think they've overplayed their hand. Okay, um, I'm going to take one more question over here, and then we'll um, then we'll take both of those. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council, and I wanted to thank the panel for its optimism. I hope that you're correct, but I don't share that <laughs> optimism. Uh, my question really is for Karen House. Um, as you know, it, you talked about the uh, Saudi coalition of 34. Um, some say that this would make Cento and Cito look like the 82nd Airborne in comparison. As you also, sorry, they the, would make the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization and the old Cento organizations look like the 82nd. In other words, this is a paper mache organization. As you also know, they're having a huge exercise right now in northern Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. uh, why do you think the Saudis formed this? Uh, to what degree do you think this coalition, even though a lot of members overlap, is really going to be a detriment to the U.S.-led coalition? And how serious do you think the Saudis are when they say they'd like to deploy or might deploy special forces to Syria and indeed then follow up? Because the only way the Syrian situation is going to be fixed, if it ever is, is going to be the deployment of tens or hundreds of thousands of troops for the long term. And I don't think the Saudis have any stomach for even considering that. But I'd like to get your views on how you see that coalition. Okay. Uh, um, the, why on. don't we start, Karen, with, with that question and then... Um, Maybe Rod and Dr. Fry could each offer a brief comment on um, this gentleman's comment and also the idea of, you know, yes, we've underestimated the resiliency of the shale revolution, but do these continued oil, low oil prices, you know, maybe, you know, slow that down and, and do low prices negatively impact the expanse of shale revolution and uh, prices rebound? Karen. Um, as to why they... Uh organized the 34 nation. Uh, I happen to be on the board of RAND. RAND is doing a major uh, look at that. Um, I, in asking people in uh, the kingdom about that, I, I personally think it is part of their, um, I don't think they have a strategy now. I think they have a sense that the U.S. is increasingly out of the picture. So someone said to me that major strategic issue confronting Saudi Arabia is how do we conduct ourselves in a post-US Middle East? And I think they do think about that, and that is one of the, um, some Saudis themselves kind of made fun of that saying, you know, 34 nations, it's kind of too big to do anything. You really need Egypt, Turkey, Pakistan, and um, I've forgotten who the fourth was. But um, so I think it's, um, and some people, looking at the politics between the two young princes, uh, the crown prince and uh, deputy crown prince, said that it's really the deputy crown prince way of saying to the country, you can, we can afford to get rid of the crown prince because I've got an anti-terrorism strategy here, and that's his, his long suit. That strikes me as a little too much of court politics, but... Uh, but I think it's more aimed at we have to we have to be able to sustain ourselves without the U.S. And the second uh, question on no, will they send troops? I think that personally, I think that was a way of just calling out the U.S. of putting mm -hmm. themselves leading from behind. You know, <laughs> putting themselves behind Obama and saying we're willing to charge into Syria because they know he won't do if that. If you're with us, because they know he there's not a chance he will do it. Rod, you want to take um, this? Yeah, I can be really short. Yeah. I agree, and he said it far more eloquently than I could. <laughs> <laughs>
Dr. Fayad, do you think that this, <laughs> do, but just to that point, do you yeah. think that the shale revolution, you know, maybe is... Look, I don't is think the shale revolution goes away. Yeah. But the shale revolution is a product also of prices and supply and demand. Um, what this has done is put a lot of shale production in the United States under tremendous um, pressure, and it's untested under that kind of pressure. But I think the issue, I mean, there, there is an over-focus on shale. Mm -hmm. The issue that sort of is really going to hit is, you know, when you have that kind of scale back in capital investment, both from companies supply and from countries, in the future, you, know, right. you have a lag time before you get supply. And you have to have supply replacement. You have, you know, you have reservoirs that decline and deplete. So under those circumstances, if the money's not going in, mm -hmm. something has to give. And so from a supply perspective, if you look out to the medium term, and medium term three to five years, you have a, a you know, whether you want to say it's a, it's a, a better or worse, but you, what you have is a situation where a lot of anticipated supply and a lot of growth just isn't going to happen. Yeah, uh, two points quickly, if I may. Uh, first, I go, I go back to what I said before uh, about the extent to which Saudi Arabia is thought to have played a role in where we are sustainably. I question that proposition. Uh, I think where we are today in terms of weakness of oil prices is something that was bound to happen, regardless of what the Saudis did or did not do, given supply side considerations, and we talked about some of them, including When you say side considerations, you're talking about the security situation. You know, supply considerations, meaning like uh, new technologies, shale, and, and the rest but of it. But you have to new add the security Of course, you add, uh, add, add that. Now, when I say something like 60 would be the upper end of the range, I mean, on a given day, that could be 70, 80, 90. I mean, I'm not really saying that prices are going to be as stable as they were over the century between 1870 and 1970. I mean, that's not going to happen. We're going to go through a period of volatility, a lot of it. Uh, on a given day, prices may spike 80, 70, 75, something like this. But on a trend basis, given the supply considerations that we talked about, including especially shale and changes in technology and, and the rest of it, I, I think it's difficult to bet on prices on a trend basis exceeding much the $60 end of that range I'm talking about. Besides, one last point, in terms of uh, actually impact on investment in exploration and production and the rest of it, some of this is happening already. I mean, high cost centers are not producing anymore. I mean, who is, North Sea oil, for example, where is that now, given where and at how much uh, oil, oil is selling and others? So some of this, in a, we are living in a dynamic sense, there's no question about it. Finally, how much longer this time around is going to take to bring those rigs back to the sites relative to the length of time it used to take before in previous weeks? I submit this time around a lot shorter. For all of these considerations, I tend to be a lot bearish than is suggested by my colleagues here. Thank you. Sir. Chuck Wald, Deloitte Prudent, Atlantic Prudent. Council Board uh, for Karen or anybody. Uh, first of all, fascinating. Everything's, I think, I, I agree that there's all these dynamics playing. There's, there's a reality to me. Uh, we produce about 10 million barrels a day in the United States, I think, last I heard. Somebody can correct me around there. Yeah. We use 22 million barrels a day. We have 250 million cars in America. We have half the oil in America that we need. So, I mean, all these ideas we're talking about, shale, all this, the reality is we're stuck until we replace another 12 million barrels. Uh, 
So, I mean, I get all the dynamics of the economics and climate, and, but how do, you, how do you square that? I mean, it, it, we have rhetoric. The narrative right now in America is we're going to be free of oil dependency, and we don't have to have all these things. Uh, so, so can you comment on that? I used to cover energy for the Wall Street Journal right after the embargo, so 75 to 78. And, uh, you know, independence was always uh, the goal and always just sort of a decade away. And it's always been thus and always will be thus. So the idea of independence, I think people need to really um, get a grip on. Uh, but obviously the producers have to sell, so we're not, uh, we're not, uh, desperate, but I think the idea that just because we don't need oil, we can wash our hands of the Middle East, and you know the American public mood is getting much tougher on Saudi Arabia for executions, for the way it treats women. I mean, there, there are just a lot of people who say you shouldn't associate with people like that. Um, but you, I think we do have to have some friends some allies, if not friends, uh, in that part of the world, and we're kind of assuming we don't now. Sherry, why don't we introduce the idea, you know, of renewables? Um, you know, we say that we're stuck, but, you know, over the long term, I mean, clearly we're not anywhere there yet, but the International Energy Association projects renewable energy by 2025 is going to account for nearly half the increase in global power, wind and solar, um, making up about 45% uh, of that expansion. So, you know, are, we may be stuck in the short term, but how stuck are we over the long term? Right. I, I think that's a good point. I mean, Chuck, certainly, you know, from the work we've done together, you know, we know that in the near term, yes, the U.S. continues to depend on uh, imported oil, despite um, the, uh, the contributions that have been made by the shale oil revolution in the U.S., uh, which has been a, which has been a great thing for our country, but we still, of course, continue to be depend uh, dependent on imported oil. But you know, we shouldn't underestimate. We've assumed globally for so long that global economic growth and demand for oil go hand in hand. And what we've now seen is that there's beginning to be a delinking of that. Is you can have global economic, you can have growth that doesn't uh, doesn't uh, require a lockstep increase in the demand for oil because there is beginning to be more diversity in other energy sources, as you well know from your own work. And I think you know, we haven't really talked yet about the impact of the Paris climate negotiations here yet. And there is not necessarily an immediate impact, but I think we will, because it, it in some ways ratifies a trend that's already been underway that will continue. Um, the question is how is always going to be how fast, which is to uh, reduce reduce carbon pollution in the economy, which is going to lead to alternative sources. And now we see that renewables, wind and solar, are becoming more economical and, and less high risk oil, you know, exploration like more Arctic, you know, deep water drilling. Well, that demand has have evaporated. I mean, you saw Shell pulled out of the Arctic, and deep water drilling is is not happening either. So. Uh, as our oil man knows, you know you go, you know you don't go for the high risk stuff when the prices aren't there. But now the prices are lower for the renewables, so you're seeing many other types of um, you know energy sources and technologies. You know the shale revolution applies not only to 
the technologies there are going to end up being good not only for shale but have applications, other applications as well. And you know, you see that that states like California have continued to have very strong economic growth while becoming increasingly efficient as economies. And I think, you know, you're going to see that post post Paris that countries, you know, China among them need to find efficiencies. Uh, in their energy use, if only to address the health impacts on their populace uh, from, um, you know, from, their, from their ways that they've been using hydrocarbons uh, to date. Rod, how does that, uh, does that affect the market? I mean, it's an interesting question. To put the sort of question, I think, in a slightly different way in terms of the impact on the market. I think U.S. demand is slightly less and U.S. production is slightly higher than you suggested. Um, when people talk about energy security, you're absolutely right. It, it, it's, it, but it misses a fundamental point. When you look at you know, the biggest loss to U.S. energy security would be the end of imports from Canada. You know, when you look at where the U.S. gets its imports from. The, exactly. So you start to look at the Middle East, and the Middle East in terms of absolute numbers is nowhere near as high as it's been, I think, in popular perception and, and, and some of the com comments that you get from USG from time to time or from Congress. But that doesn't mean that the Middle East isn't important. And I go back to my point about you know, what's happening in the Middle East right now and where it's happening. If the civil war in Iraq gets out of hand, further out of hand, you, know, you have three and a half million barrels a day, four million barrels a day of production. Oil is fungible. And where the impact on the US economy could come hardest is not from an end of imports or a sort of disruption of imports, but it is something happening in a region, in a producing region, that sends prices skyrocketing and something way beyond anything we've seen. And we are at I mean, the, the, the clear and present danger in the Middle East right now is that these civil wars get out of hand. And if you look at the maps, and if you look at where oil, oil pipelines are, oil infrastructure, oil production is, it's a scary thought when you start to add up that level of production. And again, you know, this, this notion that, and I think Karen mentioned it, that the Saudis have in their minds a confidence that their borders were, weren't set. Well, in the north and the south, they were. The borders in the middle weren't. I mean, Iraq, Kuwait, Jordan, their northern neighbors, all had borders that were set, and all had borders that are potentially going to be under threat. So how you, again, how you manage, how you can contain that crisis and stop it from bl blowing up more globally or, or more regionally, I would suggest is probably the biggest threat that we have out there, and it's one that doesn't get as much attention as everything the else. The Saudi wall between them exactly. and Iraq will be as effective as the Maginot Line. Absolutely. Yeah. It's well, sad. And, and Libya, too. <laughs> I mean, things are blowing up in Libya, yeah. so, I mean... But, you know, it's you know, sandcastles. I mean, how big a right. sandcastle are you going to build? I would like to make one fast point on the younger generation in Saudi Arabia, because I do think whether it's Mohammed bin Nayef or Mohammed bin Salman, that there is going to be an energy and assertiveness, even though they're very different personalities. There uh, seems to be a much more forward-looking economic Mohammed perspective. Mohammed bin Salman yeah. is clearly more of a risk taker and you know, some say naive and unwise, but he is willing to push the envelope. Mohammed bin Nayef is obviously more kind of restrained and thoughtful maybe, but I think that there is a there is an energy um, that will be there um, that has been missing for at least 25 years in, um, in that country. 
All right, well, I'd like to, um, unfortunately, we don't have time for any more questions. We're running a little bit late, but I want to thank the Atlantic Council and all of our panelists today. I think it was a really great discussion, which you don't hear that much about um, the impacts of energy and oil in the region and how that impacts um, the global markets, and particularly the U.S., so a lot of food for thought. Um, the Atlantic Council and the Skokoff Center have some wonderful papers um, about this on their website, so I encourage you um, to follow up there. And thank you very much.